In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast of organic Welcome back, folks. This is Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. You can check us out at prn.fm. And, uh, yeah, you can find all kinds of interesting material. And you can find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. The website as well, it's from what I hear, and I haven't been there in a few days, but I know it's constantly being worked on and, and improved, and I really think that Everyone who's listening should definitely check out the website. Check out all of the new features. So there's videos and also articles of the various hosts who host programs on PRN. So I think that's really interesting and pretty exciting because then if people hear programs they like, if they hear something and they'd like to learn more about the person on the other end of the microphone, there'll be much more information available. So check that out at prn.fm. And what else is going on? I, well, I had a good weekend. Um, saw some friends. Went to the National League Championship Series Game 2, Dodgers versus the Cubs last night at Wrigley Field with my good friend Mark. I had a wonderful time. There's nothing like playoff baseball in Wrigley. Or, you know, I can imagine a stadium like, say, the old Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Camden Yards, so on. So I love the atmosphere. I always have. I grew up playing baseball. I just sim- I simply cannot follow it for 162 games, though. It's just too much. So I can't say I'm a diehard fan in that way. Uh, what I would say is that I really enjoy this, the game of baseball. I enjoy sports. I enjoy sort of excellence in sports, watching professional athletes, Olympic-level athletes compete in their specific sport or discipline. I find all of that amazing. You know, uh, maybe emulated. I think that's something to think about. It's really emulating this kind of hard work and discipline it would take to be an Olympic level athlete and something like that I think could be applied the mentality the work ethic should be I think applied to activism I think political work social work cultural work art in many ways there's a utilitarian aspect too these various art forms. And I'm not sure if that part is focused on as much as, say, the art itself or the process of creating. Um, so anyway, now that we're off on a tangent that wasn't even on my list of things to talk about today, um, something I think people should think about, though. And we've explored this idea in the past on this program, and it's 
something I speak with my friends, particularly friends who are organizers about this. And there is, although it's not as simplistic as saying, oh, well, there's this dichotomy and artists are lazy and athletes are not. No, it's, it's obviously much more complex than that. And obviously there are people who are artists and athletes and all of the above. But I do think some of the stereotypes hold true. So I do know a lot of my friends who are very creative artist types have a very difficult time honing their skills because they don't have, say, the discipline or the work ethic to keep up uh, and to constantly hone their art to make it better, to create more, to be disciplined and willing to put your efforts into your specific art form and make it as best as you can, you know, the best version for you or of you that you can display. That to me seems to be the major challenge for many people who are creative, but also for political activists. And let's be serious here too. It's not as though everyone who is politically engaged even maybe should be politically engaged in terms of their inability to, uh, let's say, keep a regular schedule, be responsible, dependable, and so on. Because there's also this other weird belief I've heard expressed in many sort of progressive left circles that there's like this, this aversion to talk about personal responsibility. And I don't mean it in the weird, cynical, punitive way that a lot of conservative slash right-wing people will say this, you know, or simply regurgitate it. I think sometimes, I think sometimes people are just simply repeating things they're hearing from political elites and from the media and so on. Things they've grown up with, things their parents have said. But I also think that there's an element to truth in this lack of personal responsibility when it comes to, say, the planet and or activism, being engaged, speaking up, fighting back, working with others who feel similarly. Not the same, similarly. We don't talk about personal responsibility that much at least on the so-called left or whatever, among activists. And I think that's a big mistake because I think that each of us are responsible. I think we're also collectively responsible for what we do and what we don't do in response to concentrated power, to vast inequalities various forms of oppression and repression, militarism, war, the destruction of the environment, and so on. You know, these are questions for us to answer. I mean, and I know it's hard for people, I think, to want to get involved because they don't see much that they want to get involved with. I mean, I have to admit that after 10 years of doing activist work, I kind of feel that way right now. I mean, there's plenty of movements to support or there's plenty of actions there's plenty of organizations and, say, singular causes to work with. 
like a fight for 15 campaign, for instance. I mean, who could argue against that any person with decent sense? They're not going to. That's why the vast majority of people support it. But the question then is, how can you get those people to actually fight for that? How can you get, say, half of the people? If we had half of the people in this country who say they want and raise in the minimum wage to actually do something, get off your asses, get involved. Oh, yes, and no, I, I say this, and this is another thing that we need to go through here. I say this with the understanding that people are poor, people have a tough time paying bills, that people have a, a jobs, sometimes two, three jobs. But this doesn't explain how the some people I know, say some who are single mothers caring for one, two, three children, and they're also engaged, but who are also engaged in political work, volunteering their time. And it doesn't have to be even strictly politics. I mean, we could also, we could also say a homeless shelter, a food pantry, the many, many, many needs that are being unmet by corporations in the state, private sector, and the public sector. And in the meantime, you have very few institutions and entities that can make up the gap. So you have right-wing groups who can swoop in and often provide services and goods to people who are in need. Because surely the left isn't doing this. There's people, there's, there's a person I know, Juan Fernandez, in East Chicago who does a turkey drive for people during Thanksgiving. And I think that that's a really good, well, not only a really good project in and of itself, but I also think it's a good way to actually reach out to people, to provide something to local community members. And so they know. You know, it's not just the churches. It's not just these conservative entities that are providing these goods and services. But it's also progressive folks, people who have good politics, people who are trying to tie that, say, individual or collective poverty, oppression to the larger institutions that are causing it. And that's something that, and I apologize, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, I apologize for my voice, but it's what you get for going to a Cubs game, playoff game. So <laughs> this is the uh, result, is a really, really, really rough voice today. But the, the churches are not going to do that. The churches are, and if they do, if they do educate people while they're providing them essential services, Unfortunately, that education is going to be quite reactionary in most cases. And that's a problem. So when we ask people to get involved, it's very difficult to do that if there aren't groups that are 
I think, doing worthwhile things. And that's not just sitting around with a bunch of eggheads and talking like you're in some kind of goddamn college classroom. I mean, if you want to really know why people, you know, people, I, I, I run into so many sensitive leftists. They're, they're such thin skin. I have no idea how, they, how they're going uh, to survive if a context uh, unfolds in, in which we are living in, uh, under much greater stress and so on. These people are going to fold. We, we hear, I hear from thin-skinned leftists, oh, you're too hard on people. You're too hard on activists. You're too hard on the movement, so-called movement, which I don't think exists either. And it's not, the point isn't to just be hard on people for the sake of being hard on people. The point is to be critical of the things we're involved with so we can improve. That's the, that's the key for us, is to improve, to get better. That's what we should be seeking. And I think in order to do that, we have to challenge each other. And we have to be open and honest about it. We can't just hide behind uh, obscure language. We can't just hide behind the, you know, a keyboard or social media or so on. We have to talk to each other. And I think we have to challenge each other. We have to say, hey, wait a minute, is that the best way to do things? Or, hey, wait a minute, is that the best way to reach out to people? Or, hey, wait a minute, why aren't our so-called movements, Fight for 15, Black Lives Matter, environmental movements, for instance, why aren't they more successful? Why aren't we more successful? And I don't know if... We're incapable of having those conversations or if we simply avoid them as much as possible. I don't think we're incapable of having those conversations. In any other pursuit, we would always have those conversations. If you're a band and you are like, so for my friends who are musicians, you know, they come, if they're in a band and if they're in bands that tour and if they're in bands that are creating music, they will quite often come back to the drawing board and say, well, wait a minute, what are we doing that's working, what's not working? Are we all still having fun? Are we all still staying true to our creative roots? Are we still interested in these projects? If not, why so? How can we make them better? How can we make fans and people who appreciate our artwork more interested in it? And of course, the same, as I mentioned earlier, is true with sports. With sports, this is always the case. You lose a game, you lose several games, you have a bad season, you have a p bad postseason. You go back to the drawing board. People take a break for a little while, which I also think is very important. People should take breaks. But you go back to the drawing board after that break is over and you determine what was working, what wasn't working, what needs to be done differently. Do we have the right personnel? Do we not have the right personnel? What kind of talents are we lacking? Where are we strong? What are our weaknesses? We don't do that. 
on the left. I, I, there are some groups who do that. There are individual campaigns that do that. There are organizations that will sometimes do that, but surely not the most powerful organizations in this country. So the organizations who actually run things on the left, like unions, if you want to consider them on the left, big NGOs, uh, old, say, organizations, political parties, and so on, we can go down the list. And so we run into an issue here because we don't have – so people who are just showing up, let's say – let's take Fight for 15 as a good example. That's probably a perfect example. Okay. So you have the Fight for 15 movement, so-called movement. Has had some successes in municipalities, but not – a tremendous amount of success, and of course, most of the reforms that are coming are coming too late. So by the time the actual $15 an hour kicks in, you will essentially be making the $12 an hour that you're making right now, if not less, depending on what happens with the economy. So if you're someone who supports this movement or this idea of a movement, then you go to the event. And you hear some speakers and you see maybe a few hundred people, maybe you see a couple thousand people, you know, but that's, again, this rather small still in terms of public support, you're not talking about tens of thousands of people in cities across the nation demanding a rise in minimum wage. That's not happening. Now, some might ask or some might say, well, you're talking about protests. We're talking about campaigns. Well, of course, camp can't or I'm sorry, of course. Protests and symbolic actions will be a part of campaigns. They always are. It's important for many reasons. Number one, there's a media game being played. Number two, it's, an, it's a chance for people to meet each other, say activists and organizers who have only previously communicated with each other through the internet, emails, chat rooms, and so on, coordinating events or coordinating actions to finally be able to meet each other in the flesh to march down the street to have a symbolic action it could be very good for morale as well so there's many reasons why you would have a protest and so it's not that the people who are organizing for fight for 15 don't want massive protests in cities across the country because you can bus in or fly in tens of thousands of people to do like a weekend long and I've been part of many of these where there's activists from around the country who converge on say Washington DC or New York City for an event or uh, one of the major political parties uh, national conventions I've been been to events like that but I'm not talking about that I'm talking about organically people from the cities locales municipalities towns and so on where they grew up where they live where they work or where they currently live, organizing massive protests, of course, campaigns, performing acts of civil disobedience, that's not taking place. And even when it was, so a couple years ago when there were many Fight for 15 protests and events and speaking events and fundraisers going on in the city of Chicago, people didn't know, I didn't know, I would like to think that I'm as knowledgeable or as knowledgeable or connected within this world of activism as anyone else. But I'm, you know, I'm often informed 
of things that I previously had no idea about. So this was one of those cases where I was asking my friend, well, where are they getting the money and the resources to do this? And he said, oh, it's at CIU, Service Employees International Union. And I said, oh, really? So SEIU is the institutional and financial backer for Fight for 15. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that. Okay, number one, Fight for 15 no longer becomes an organic movement, which it's not. Uh, it's a movement. It's a series of organizations that's very top-heavy, very top-down, very hierarchical. And the people who are showing up to these events, the people who think that they are being inv- or getting involved with like this organic movement, are actually the 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 decisions are made beforehand. So you're going into meetings with people who have already sat in other meetings and have determined how they're going to shape the conversation, how they're going to direct certain people and certain elements within organizations and movements. How you know what's going to happen? I mean, I've been through this many times with different NGOs where you'll go to say something that's called a strategy retreat or a conference, you know, like they had this thing in Chicago called the People's Conference. Of course, what, or I think it was right after the election. It was something like this. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was called the People's Summit. Of course, what people didn't understand, many people who went to the summit or people who went and who did understand because they're critical enough on their own to understand kind of what's going on, went to the summit and understood what a lot of us understood before the summit even happened, which is that there was an existing agenda that was going to be pushed at the summit. These aren't organic movements, folks. These are movements of like paid professional activists. These are people who operate in the NGO world. They have only operated in the NGO world. They went to the right colleges. They went to the right private high schools. You know, this is is a whole culture in and of itself that is just as corrupt and just as, uh, I think, offensive in many ways as the existing culture and institutions that exist in dominant society. Unfortunately, I say that because we need something much better. So far, however, there hasn't been or there haven't been many alternatives to that dominant NGO system. And of course, the unions, my God, we all, I mean, I don't even think anyone who's ever worked with unions, anyone who's ever been a member of a union understands from a progressive angle, from a left-wing angle, from a radical perspective, just how ineffective and how useless modern unions many of them have become. I mean, of course, you have slight exceptions like uh, the National Nurses United, NNU. But there, there's problematic politics involved with the NNU as well. And see, people don't talk. I don't think we talk about this for two reasons, maybe a few reasons. I'm going to name two that I think is, is pro- they're probably the, the top two reasons why we don't talk about these politics. I think the first reason is that many people simply don't know the history of these organizations. They don't know where these movements come from. They don't know where these unions come from. They don't know their ideological backing. They don't know the kind of individuals who have uh, largely steered and formed these organizations throughout the years, these unions throughout the years. But there's problematic politics there. It's very top-down top-heavy organization again, NNU. They do good work, of course, but we should have open and honest conversations about these movements and what they, again, how they're comprised or these organizations, how they're comprised, what they look like, are they being effective, are they useful, 
to say rank and file activists are people able to articulate reforms that they would like to see within these organizations or unions or entities and more often than not the case is no you know people there's trying to change a union is a very difficult task there are many progressive elements within various unions but overall the unions in the united states are extremely conservative and not only ideologically but also practically socially ideologically political ideology, but also in their sort of cultural, social ideology. Very conservative, have always been. Uh, there are changes, of course, throughout the decades with the modern, uh, leading to the modern union movement. And we've talked about that on previous programs with people like uh, Dr. Kim Sipes and Dr. Harry Targ. Uh, we'll talk about that, of course, in the future. But the point is, these entities, these unions that exist... Very undemocratic, very problematic for people who are organizing on a grassroots level, people who are organizing on a community level. My friends who organize on that level, who focus on neighborhoods and communities, they have tremendous problems with these dominant institutions on the left, like unions, or the many number of NGOs that exist out there, or the numerous politicians and so-called community leaders and reverends and pastors and so on, all of whom, all of the above, really pr provide roadblocks for the many groups that are forming or who would otherwise form. So, Almost halfway through the program today, and I have yet to get to any of the things that I promised people on social media and my email list that I would get to. So, so just to round out part of what I was mentioning here, and part of why I think this is really important is because I think we don't do ourselves any favors as a movement, as individual activists, as organizers, artists, and so on. We don't do ourselves any favors if we are not self-critical, if we're not critical of each other, if we're not willing to reflect, if we're not willing to change the ways in which we do things, the ways we operate, the ways we think, I think we're only doing our, ourselves a, dis a disservice here. And I think the more we can look inward and ask why isn't or why can't we build more effective movements, organizations in light of these systems that are failing the better we'll be okay so the first thing I mentioned earlier or the first thing I promised folks I would talk about. But I'm, oh goodness, I'm only a few weeks left, my friends. Only a few weeks. And we will no longer have the constant horse race news cycle running. 
about Hillary and Trump. But now I think everyone understands, as many of us were arguing for a year and a half, which kind of brings us, I mean, so the reason, I guess for one of the reasons, I think personally, so I'll speak about myself here, one of the reasons this election cycle has been so interesting to me has been due to the fact that this was the first presidential cycle that I became involved with electoral politics. I've been involved local issues, campaigns, races, things that have happened in the past, elections that have taken place. But never have I volunteered my time or donated the amount of money that I've donated to this, to Bernie Sanders' campaign during the primaries in this election cycle. And I didn't do that. So from the beginning for me, it wasn't about Bernie winning because I actually never thought that Bernie had much of a chance. There was a slight moment, however, in January the beginning of the year where I thought, you know, if X, Y, and Z happens, but in the end, it didn't happen. And in the end, I don't think that was what was most important, though we could possibly be looking back at this moment in hindsight saying, well, that was our lost opportunity, at least in the electoral sphere, to finally have someone, even if he was completely ineffective, to at least symbolically lead this empire But then the problem would have arised as to whether or not Bernie supporters would have actually been critical of him. This is something else that I actually don't have much faith in because you see how people behaved. You see how Obama's supporters behaved after he got elected. And you see during the primaries how uncritical many of the Bernie supporters were of Bernie, his policies, and also the way the campaign was being run. But anyway, all that aside... Now that we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Hillary Clinton is going to win the election, this is, I think, unquestionable, unless something absolutely insane happens. Of course, we know why the demographics are shifting. People, There's simply not enough angry white men to vote for Donald Trump. And I think I mentioned last week the map that was on 538 of the difference it would what what the electoral map would look like if only women could vote and what the electoral map would look like if only men could vote Nate Silver at 538.com also has a side-by-side -side comparison of what the electoral map would look like if only white people voted and if only people of color voted if only people of color voted there would not be one state in the United States that would be red. Now, this is troublesome on many different levels. Okay. Not, I mean, on the surface, of course, this is better than them voting Republican. But the larger divide that it shows, this divide between this white America that sees itself as being under attack, whether 
some of that is justified or not is a conversation for another day. Under attack by corporations and a corrupt government? Sure. Under attack by Muslims, women's rights activists, Hispanic and, and Latino immigrants? No, of course not. Syrian refugees? No, of course not. But the interesting thing is that the Trump people, as I mentioned before, and as I think we should continue to mention, they really aren't organized. The campaign itself hasn't been very organized. We should all be grateful for this, by the way. Because if the right could actually organize, if they actually had real organizers, people who have organized campaigns, not elect, just electoral campaigns, but people who have organized local communities, people who have organized single-issue campaigns, people who have been involved with more radical actions, you know, thank God that there's not a more organized right that Trump's people are extremely disorganized. And they remain so. So yes, they are outraged. Yes, they have been giving, given some voice, some level of legitimacy. But they're not. I mean... So, yes, okay, they've, they've been given a level of legitimacy. But, again, they're not organized. They're not having local events. There's nobody in Chicago, Illinois, who's organizing Trump events. Hell, there's no one in northwest Indiana who's routinely organizing Trump events. The campaign isn't even really organizing in the area. It's a lot of alienated individuals who are sort of at the margins of political society who support this guy. And then, yes, again, as many polls and studies have showed, the median income for Trump supporters is, I think, $72,000. Much wealthier supporters than Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. I think the median annual income for Sanders supporters is somewhere around 61000 And I think for Clinton, it's 56000 I know Clinton, in the end, represents the poorest in this country out of the candidates who are left or the candidates who were left. That in and of itself is something interesting to think about. So anyway, back to Trump, his supporters are simply disorganized, but they are very angry. So they might organize, say, small militia groups. They might have small church groups, white nationalists, and so on, might be able to organize small events and they might be able to cause great damage if they participate say in small acts of terrorism as white nationalists and white supremacists in the United States have for many many centuries now but in the modern era as well of course young people don't remember Timothy McVeigh but people should now I think the positives outweigh the negatives with Trump's run. I honestly think that in the long run, Trump has sort of laid bare a system that is utterly corrupt to the bone. And I, I'm not saying this is Trump through his words doing this. I think the very notion that Trump is in the position that he's in, combined with the outlandish, at least outlandish within the context of elite political discourse, things that he says 
and things he's been saying and continues to say. Not so much the character assassinations and the crazy stuff, but the things that Trump mentions about the system, the critiques he makes about a corrupt political system has resonated with tens of millions of people. Now, of course, there are reports coming out. I read on Raw Story this morning and then also on Vox that Trump's son-in-law is working on a Trump TV channel, which I actually think could be pretty There's some people who think that it wouldn't be successful because so many people are cutting their cable subscriptions, particularly millennials who can't afford cable and they don't want anything to do with cable because why in the hell would you listen to cable news in the first place? But is there enough time, say another five or ten years, how much cash, how many endorsements, how many advertisement dollars can you garner in sort of the last gasp five or ten years of the baby boomer generation? I think Trump would do quite well there. Can some of Trump's supporters be organized? That's a question that I've been exploring here and there in articles and conversations and in various programs that I've had on, on this show. I think some of them could. I think if you look at a clip like I, I, there was a great report that The Guardian did where they went to West Virginia and spoke with really poor white people who supported Donald Trump. Those people... I think absolutely you can organize them. I think that there should be a, an effort made. And if, let's say, okay, let me back up. There is no guarantee that you can organize anyone, let alone any community or so-called community. But I think of all of the sort of Trump supporters that are out there, I think the people who are at the lowest end of the economic totem pole should be the focus of a massive organizing campaign. And I think that whites in the South and progressive whites, both who live in the South and who live in other portions of the United States, I think, you know, Great Great Plains region, the mountain, the mountain region, Idaho, Wyoming. Well, it's, I don't I'm not I'm not sure. If you would want to spend that much time there, I think in higher concentrated areas, population at least, it might be who of progressive movements to organize in those places and to do a substantial and intentional reaching out to Trump supporters. Of course, if the Bernie campaign was truly a movement and it really wasn't it would be mobilized and organized and capable of doing something like that now but it it's not so once again we just have to be honest it's not about bashing anyone it's not about being angry at anyone though i know many people who are quite angry at bernie particularly those within his inner circle and uh you know i i pepper people locally with some questions about, you know, what do you think about the campaign? And, but these are people who are very, very detached from the people who operate in Vermont, the people who have operated within that circle of uh, Bernie for many, many decades now. And those people are extremely angry. They expected more from him. 
They not only expected more from him during the campaign, but they expected more from him once the campaign ended. Because right now, the question has to be asked, where is it? Where are the Bernie people? Do they exist still? Do they not exist? Where, where have they gone? Are they going to come out after the election? Are people, because I'm telling you right now, folks, who should pay attention to this, particularly people who live in the North or in the Northeast or in the Midwest or in the Rust Belt, people largely disappear from now until the day that the next president is going to be sworn in. I think that's January 17th or 19th, some, something like that. That's not what's important. What's important is to recognize that most people have already disengaged from what has become an 18 months complete and utter extravaganza spectacle, so on. And who can blame them? But that makes it hard to mobilize people for movement building or to build organizations or to even work on the community level because many people have just had enough. And also people tune out many times, even in non-election years, during the holidays. It's always really difficult to organize people from, I'd say, through the month of November, through the month of January. I'm sorry, through the month of December and even into January and February. It was very out of the ordinary to have the kind of protests that we had in Madison, Wisconsin back in 2012 in the dead of winter. I haven't seen anything like that before during my time as an activist, and I haven't seen anything like that since. Most of the time, you're going to see these explosions in the summertime, in the spring. Especially in the spring, you have a lot of time where people are sitting at home, thinking about things, reading, pondering. And those thoughts that are formulated, those values that are questioned, those conversations that you have in those cold months, often filtered into very explosive movements in the spring and in the summer. I think that's something to think about because what I see for Clinton is a disastrous first hundred days in office. So as I mentioned before, her first four years in office, if she makes it past the first four years, let's say she, she, you know, First four years, she's going to get more pushback from the right. I wouldn't say Republicans, but I'll say the right than Obama did or just as much. There's half of her party is very fractured. Independents hate her. And I just cannot see how the first four years of her administration is going to be any better than Obama's. And in fact, I would assume it's going to be much worse. But the question remains, you know, how many of Hillary's people will step out and become critical? How many of Trump supporters can actually be organized? And I guess for, for some of us, the question is, can we reconnect 
with the people we met along the way during the Bernie campaign because that was the primary argument for staying involved with the campaign was to engage in conversations to meet people that we otherwise wouldn't have met because there aren't public areas that people go to and discuss politics because there aren't local organizations and unions and and entities that exist that can mobilize people who have those kind of politics, similar politics. So can we reconnect with the people we met along the way? Can we connect with the people who had already been doing work prior to Bernie's campaign, which is the vast majority of activists who are out there? But those next steps, you know, where, where, is, where are these movements? Where will they go? What do they want? Was Bernie's movement useful? Was his campaign useful? Are the movements that exist out there today, are the so-called movements that exist out there today being useful? Could they be more effective and how? All of these, including next steps, I think would depend on in people's economic situation, what happens with the environment, what region one lives in, the geography in which one lives, the demographics where one lives. But that community outreach, edu- educating local communities, educating each other, developing shared values and a shared we can move on to action. We are far away from that. And I don't think we should skirt the issue and I don't think we should hide the fact that on a massive scale, on a large scale, outside of, say, individual neighborhoods or organizations that operate on a very small level. Other than that, this isn't happening. So there's not going to be someone or some entity from somewhere who's more educated or smarter than you that's going to come up with it. You're going to have to come up with these ideas. We are going to have to come up with these ideas. Hopefully, in the meantime, we can make activism more fun. Hopefully we can make it more effective because right now I don't really think it's either fun or effective for the most part. There are, you know, we had uh, Samantha Castro on the program. There are examples of people who are being effective in their activism and also having fun while doing it. Taking lessons from those people I think would be Taking advice, learning from those people I think would be good. All right. I've got a clip for you that I want to play. It's from a recent, what the heck is it called? I think Adam Curtis documentary, I want to say. I posted it on social media. You can check it out. Check out my social media page at Vince Emanuele. That's at Facebook. I know I still need to get on Twitter. Nonetheless, just check me out on Facebook. And I be- yes, it's an Adam Curtis documentary I believe and it's called hypernormalization so here's a five-minute clip from that documentary this is the normal world you go to work in a city all around you are enormous new buildings they look alike but you will never be able to afford to live in them because they are not really homes they are blocks of money bought by global investors whose money has nowhere else to go. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now... 
now say the decision taken in 1975 has been reversed by this Brexit happened. It showed that all the people who are supposed to tell you about the world, the journalists, the politicians, the think tank experts, know nothing. It showed that they and you live in a dream world, detached from reality. You spend your days and nights on social media. The original vision was that it was going to open up a new paradise where information was shared freely. But now, the algorithms are so strong and know so much about you that they only give you what they know you like. You have become trapped in an echo chamber where all you see and hear is you. You go into an office and sit at a desk, but maybe it is a fake job. Your real job is shopping. The true factories of our time are the shopping malls. That is where the real hard work is done. You are managed with performance targets and measured outcomes. But as you sit in the glass-walled offices, you know that the targets are manipulated and fake, and the managers know that you know. But you all sit there and pretend it is objective and rational. You are cool, and you know what is cool. The original idea of cool, back in the 1960s, was that you would pull back and see the world for what it really was, the violence and brutal power hidden under the surface. A detached gaze, free of political manipulation. But then the politics fell away, and now you are just left detached. You know that the politicians today have no idea what is happening. They pretend to be in control, but they are helpless in the face of the refugee crisis, and they do nothing to stop the corruption, the growing inequality, the emptying of the cities by the waves of money. But maybe they aren't really politicians any longer. They have become instead pantomime villains, whose real job is to make us angry. And when we are angry, we click more. And clicks feed the ever-growing power and wealth of the corporations that run social media. We think that we are expressing ourselves. But really, we are just components in their system. That system absorbs all opposition, which is why nothing ever changes. Forty years ago, there was another all-encompassing system. It was in the Soviet Union. But by the 1970s, the system was starting to crack. Russia became a society where everyone knew that what their leaders said was not real, because they could see with their own eyes that the economy was falling apart. But everybody had to play along and pretend that it was real, because no one could imagine any alternative. One Soviet writer called it hypernormalization. You were so much a part of the system that it was impossible to see beyond it. The fakeness was hypernormal. 
I can't wait to see this documentary. I think it was just released yesterday. I think Sunday, October 16th was when it was released. Simply Google it. Adam Curtis, Vice, documentary, hypernormalization. It'll come up. I think there's a website through, you can, through which you can check it out. And I believe it's about two and a half hours. So it's a commitment. Well, I guess for some it's a commitment. Sit down, check it out. I'm assuming it would be better to watch it in one go as opposed to watching it in parts. Most directors don't make films so people can watch them in parts. So I know my friends like Johnny and Sergio and Olivier would probably choke me if I told people to sit down and watch little segments of it. But nonetheless, there's a little clip so you can have a little taste of the documentary. And the most important thing, I think, the most important takeaway from that documentary is that we are slowly becoming completely consumed by the existing systems and thinking that we can continue to use these existing systems and that they won't have a sort of net negative impact on us. So yes, can you use social media to have uh, an event or to invite people out? Sure. At the same time, as a recent report showed, social media has been used and will continue to be used by government agencies to coordinate crackdowns on protesters, to look at what activists and protesters are doing, to look at their strategies and tactics, and so on. So that's something I think to keep in mind. And not only that, of course, but this this echo chamber of being surrounded by people who agree with you. It's amazing to me. And it's a shame, really. I mean, I honestly wish my Facebook was filled. These algorithms are terrible. Years ago when Facebook started and we were doing political stuff in 06 and 07, 08, it was fun because most of the stuff you would put on Facebook, there would be dozens of people who would argue about it, who would say, oh my goodness, you know, that echo chamber now that exists is a shame, but it's also a social echo chamber. I can't tell you how many people I know hang out with only people who are progressives or liberals or leftists or so on, and I think that's a big mistake. I want to leave you with a hilarious song. Uh, you're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. I will see you next week. Until then, enjoy the LTH crowd favorite, Make America Great Again. This is a movement. We're going to make our country great again. Believe me, we will make our country great again. Oh, let's make America great again, like in the good old days. Way back when, there were root beer floats at every soda shop. Ice cream sundaes with a cherry on top. Fresh mowed lawns where we play in the grass. Waving to the neighbors. Was a okay? No warning labels to dismay me as I smoked in a restaurant holding my baby. Your boss's friends were always happy to greet ya. They'd slap your ass and say nice to.